0: Well, good morning, Chapel family. Great to see everybody today. Welcome to the fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Uh, In fact, tomorrow is uh, the darkest day of the year, right? December 21st, winter solstice. We will have the least amount of sunlight, the most amount of darkness. And I know for a lot of you, the darkness of, uh, of the pandemic, the challenges of the pandemic have made it seem even darker than usual. Here's the great news, though. Here's the thing about darkness, when it's most dark, that's when we tend to notice the light the most. It just stands out more in in the darkness. In fact, there's a really um, remarkable scientific occurrence that's taking place this December 21st. I know some of you have heard of this. They're calling it a Christmas star event. Have you heard about this thing? So it's basically uh, two planets, Jupiter and Saturn, in their orbits are gonna be coming so close to each other that it's gonna look like one bright light in the sky. The last time this has happened uh, like this was the year 1226 AD, about 800 years ago. Some people believe that this was the the astronomical phenomenon that took place to provide the light that the wise men followed um, to follow the star to find Jesus. So it's happening this year, just by chance, on the darkest day of the year, on December 21st, And so it's going to be in the southwestern sky for the first hour or two after sunset, right after sunset. So if you know from your house where the sun goes down, that's the west. Go a little bit left of that, and that would be the southwest, and you'll be able to see this bright light in the sky. you got to love the timing, right, that this should happen on the darkest day of the year. When it's the most dark, um, that's when we see the light most clearly. And so I feel like, I know for myself personally, and in conversations with others, this particular Advent season, the darkness has seemed really thick, but we've really appreciated the light in ways that we haven't before. Um, last night was actually an example of that. We had our first ever Chapel Christmas Village, which was just amazing to see that come together. And it was really dark. It was really cold but man, the place was just lit up with lights, and that was very symbolic of this great thing that we're celebrating this time of year. I did need to mention to you <clears throat> that we have added 300 more spots to, uh, to the remaining Christmas Village sessions. Excuse me. <clears throat> We've added 300 more spots. So if you've tried to go in before and register and there was nothing available, <clears throat> that's better. Uh, Please feel free to go on again and register. Uh, We would love to see you at the Christmas Village. And there are actually six more sessions that are available. So, yeah, there's a lot of darkness, but the light is is tremendous, and it shows up in the darkness. And that's been the theme for this whole Advent series. So the first two weeks, we were back in the prophet Isaiah, and uh, we were talking about the darkness in the first message, and then we were talking about a promise that was made of a coming light. Last week, for the third week of Advent, we moved into the New Testament, and we talked about preparation, as God prepared the heart of Joseph for this light that was coming. So today, we're going to look at a scene from right after the birth of the Messiah, and it's all about an invitation. Now that the light has come, there's this invitation that's being issued. By the way, um, this last fall, we studied the book of Daniel, right? That was our, our common ground study for September and October. In this week's passage, there is this fascinating connection back with the book of Daniel that hopefully you'll find as as amazing as I do. So let's read the passage together. We're in Matthew chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 12 verses. So I invite you now to hear the Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming uh, to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. So let's just start by talking about who these guys were, these, these magi. Um, They weren't three kings, unfortunately, like the song says, we three kings. They actually were not kings. The Greek word for magi is magoi, which is where we actually derive the English word uh, magic or magician. So the magi were this class of wise men who worked in the royal court of Persia, highly educated in astrology, astronomy, um, interpreting signs. They were interested in stars and dreams. They would study the scriptures of different religions to try to predict the future. So if you think of kind of like a mashup between astronomy, astrology, and theology, that's what the Magi were all about. So when they saw this star, or maybe it was an alignment of Jupiter and Saturn, um, they they knew somehow that it would guide them to the king of the Jews. And the obvious question is, how would they know that just by seeing this this object in the sky? Um, I want to suggest an answer to how they knew. The Magi were from the Persian Empire, which is modern-day Iran. If you were a Jewish person reading about this in the first century, just the sound of the Persian Empire would have brought back really bad memories. Because before it became the Persian Empire, it used to be ruled, that same area used to be ruled by Babylon. And about six centuries earlier, the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, had come and attacked Israel. Uh, They destroyed Jerusalem. They pillaged the temple. They killed a lot of people. They marched the survivors back to Babylon. It was about a 900-mile journey. So after Babylon fell out of power, the Persians took over and the Jewish people were still captive. To the Persians now. So for a Jewish person, the Persian empire represented this terrible dark history, uh, tar- dark period in their history. But one of the bright spots of that period was a young man named Daniel. And as we studied this past fall, Daniel was one of those Jewish exiles who had been carried off to Babylon. Now here's where it gets interesting. Look with me at Daniel chapter two, verse 48. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position, and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its, you see what it says? All of its wise men. You know who these wise men were, right? These were the Magi. So think about this. Not only did Daniel join the Magi, he became the leader of the Magi, placed in charge of all of the wise men. So here's this faithful Hebrew man suddenly influencing all of these astrologers. Doesn't it make sense that Daniel would have taught the Magi the prophecy of the coming Messiah? I mean, I can't see how he wouldn't have talked to them about that. That was the hope of every faithful Jewish person. So I believe that Daniel told them all about this Messiah who was to come, who had been prophesied. So here's my explanation. I really believe that the prophecy of the coming Messiah was passed down from Daniel to the Magi to the next generation of Magi and so on. And so when Jesus was born and this strange object appeared in the sky, they put two and two together. They said, I think that's going to lead us to the Jewish Messiah. Now, I realize there's a little bit of speculation in that, but I think that provides the best explanation for how these wise men knew that that would lead them to Jesus. It's also to me a reminder that even at the darkest moments, like the Jewish captivity in Babylon, even in the darkest moments, God's up to something. God is planting seeds. God is plotting and scheming. God is bringing light in the darkness. So the Magi saw the star. They realized that it was an invitation. As we walk through their story today, let's hear the invitation that it brings to us freshly today. So three things that this invites us to. First, this is an invitation to courage, to courage. The more I've studied this passage, the more I realize just how, how gutsy these magi were. The journey to Babel, or to, to Bethlehem from, from Persia, as we said, was about 900 miles. That's far even if you're in a car. I don't know if they were walking or if they were riding on camels or horses, but this was a dangerous journey and a long journey. It took courage. But I'm even more impressed with how the Magi responded to King Herod. Um, Herod the Great was a larger-than-life figure. He was the the local ruler of that region of Judea put in charge by the Roman Empire. And like most Roman leaders... He was, he was brutal. He was feared for being a, a, a brutal, ruthless leader. At the same time, Herod the Great was admired. Um, he had some political savvy. He was a very clever man. He had actually pulled off some great famine relief projects to help the hungry. People appreciated that. He was well known for his building projects, including rebuilding the Jewish temple. So he had earned some points with the Jewish people by rebuilding their temple. Um, So very illustrious career. Unfortunately, toward the end of his life, he struggled with a terrible illness, and in his illness, he became paranoid. He was known to fly into fits of rage when people would challenge his authority. So picture this. The Magi show up in Jerusalem, and they come to King Herod, who, by the way, called himself the King of the Jews. He liked that nickname. And the Magi come up and said, hey, we heard there's a new King of the Jews. We're looking for him. And it says that Herod was deeply disturbed. He did not like what he heard. So immediately he started forming a plan. He called together all the Jewish priests and scribes, and he asked them, hey, according to your scriptures, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? And they quoted from the Old Testament book of Micah, which says that the Messiah would be born in this obscure little town called Bethlehem. So Herod sends the Magi off to Bethlehem to find Jesus, Um, And then after they see Jesus, they get this dream where God tells them not to go back to Herod. So they're faced with this decision. Do they obey the clear command of King Herod, who had told them, you come back and see me? Or do they obey what God seemed to be telling them, don't go back that way. And the Magi decide to go with God and defy the order of Herod. Courage. When we have encountered the light of Christ there is this invitation to act with courage, to do something that we maybe wouldn't do ordinarily, to act in ways that require us to depend on God. And sometimes we have to decide, will we, will we obey God over a powerful figure in our lives? In fact, let me just ask you a really personal question. Uh, do you have any King Herods in your life? Do you have any powerful people in your life who are intimidating and you don't like to defy them, <laughs> right? You like to do what they say because when they, when they don't get their way, things aren't pretty. You got any Herods in your life? And maybe one of the things that God wants to fill you with this Christmas is the courage to say no to that powerful person so you can say yes to God. I love that, that saying, I don't know who wrote it, but it says, he who kneels before God can stand before any man. And that's what had happened, right? The Magi had knelt before God in the flesh, Jesus, and suddenly they were filled with this courage to act in ways that they wouldn't before. So this Christmas, allow the the journey of the Magi, allow the star of Christmas to fill you with courage. Secondly, this is an invitation to generosity. Generosity. There's been a lot of ink spilled about the symbolic meaning of the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh. Um, Probably the most common theories I've heard is the gold represents royalty. Kings had a lot of gold. Jesus was a king. Um, The frankincense was an oil that was used by priests. And so it represented the priestly function of Jesus as a mediator between God and and humanity. And the myrrh was a burial spice that they would embalm bodies with. So the the myrrh was preparing Jesus for, for his death on the cross. I don't know. Interesting theories. But I think there's something much more obvious that's right in front of us. And it's this, the Magi were responding to God's gift of Jesus. They were responding to God's generosity by giving something very generously themselves. You've heard me say this hopefully before, that the most profound theological concept, and I think maybe the most powerful force in the world, is this thing called grace. It is so powerful. Grace simply means giving, not because the person deserves it, not because they're good enough for it or they earned it, but simply because of your love for them. Grace is a, a beautiful thing. And I believe that the Magi sense that Jesus coming was God's gift to them not because they had earned it, not because they deserved it, but because God loved them. And so as recipients of that grace, they were responding by giving generously to Jesus. There's nothing more beautiful than generosity that's fueled by grace. It it just lights up the darkness. I mentioned to you all uh, in last week's sermon, kind of a dark period of my life, my family's life, when years ago we bought a, uh, a massive fixer-upper of a house. Um, the house is not massive, but the fixer upwardness was massive, and it just needed everything, and so it just went horribly wrong. And um, we got shut down by the building department, and um, it, it was just terrible, and I developed stomach problems for about a year from it. It was a dark period of my life. So right in the midst of that darkness, there was a, a chapel guy who lives kind of in, in the neighborhood. And out of the blue, he called me. And he said, I hey, noticed you're doing some renovation on the house. I said, if you want to call it that. And he said, I would like to pay for the next big thing you do. Now you have to understand, this is, this is not a normal thing for me. People don't just you know, offer to pay for things regularly. So this was an unusual offer. And I said to him, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I want to do it. And, and he said, what's the, what's the next big thing? And I said, um, we have to put in a, a new automatic garage door, but it's going to cost like $1,100. The next day, there was an $1,100 check in my mailbox. And I thought to myself, why didn't I say $5,000? I mean, I could have, said, <laughs> could have said anything. But I have to be honest, it was a very strange and unsettling feeling. Because this was not a guy that I had recently done something special for, I hadn't, you know, done a funeral for his family, or helped one of his kids through a crisis, or anything like that. He was just a guy in the church, and I just didn't feel like I deserved this, and that was the point. It was grace, and it was really, it was really wonderful, and it was fueled by him having received God's grace. This guy was so passionate about the gospel. He was so all about loving people in the name of Christ. So he was a constant receiver of grace that he was giving out of that to me. And you just don't forget those kind of things. I mean, here we are like 17 years later and I, don't, I will never forget that. That light still burns of what he did for me. And I will never forget it. And I have to tell you, in the years since then, God has blessed my family in some different ways, and we've been able to to respond to that grace by by different kinds of generosity to other people. Um, It's this beautiful cycle when we respond to grace. This Christmas, would you ask God to just overwhelm you and unsettle you with His grace? Because sometimes we we just forget how how amazing it is. Maybe while you're singing Christmas carols, maybe while you're you're walking through the lit up Christmas village these next few days, maybe while you're uh, receiving communion at the end of the service today. The grace that he gave you when he showed up in Bethlehem, the grace that he gave you when he went to the cross. Ask God, Lord, would you just hit me with it? I've become callous to it. I don't feel it anymore. Ask him to overwhelm you and then respond to that grace like the Magi did by giving something valuable to someone who who needs it. Generosity just lights up the darkness. So the visit of the Magi is an invitation to courage. It's an invitation to generosity. And one more thing, it is clearly an invitation to worship. To worship. So the first thing the Magi say when they show up in front of King Herod, they say, we have come to worship him. Because there is this natural tendency in every human being, we, we all want something bigger than ourselves to look toward and to worship, right? I mean, nobody taught us that. That is in us as humans. Unfortunately, so often we settle for lesser gods to worship, right? We settle for a political leader and we, we get more excited about that than anything else or we worship our country, or we worship a sports star, or we worship, you know, a a singer, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend. Um, we, We settle for something less than what we're really meant to worship. We're all searching for someone or something to worship. And this is particularly profound in the case of the Magi, because remember, six centuries earlier, armies from the East had traveled those 900 miles to attack and conquer Now people from that same area traveled that same 900 miles, but instead of swords, this time they brought gifts. And think about this, instead of forcing the Jews to bow down before them, remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue, bow down and worship, instead of that, they were now the ones bowing down to worship the king of the Jews. This is an awesome scene. It's a breathtaking scene. These were men who held prominent positions in the royal court of Persia. I mean, they were used to nice stuff. And so it would have been very natural for them to sort of be a little put off by the simple surroundings of this, you know, Joseph and Mary and this baby and these surroundings that were so much less than what they were used to. But in the presence of Jesus, they were just so overwhelmed that all they could do was bow down and worship. Have you ever thought, we never hear anything about these Magi after this point in the Bible. Have you ever thought like what their lives were like after this? T.S. Eliot wrote a fascinating poem speculating on that. It's called The Journey, it's called Journey of the Magi. And I encourage you to read the whole thing. You can find it online and read. It's not a long poem. But toward the end of the poem, it says this. He has one of the Magi saying this. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. Isn't that an interesting thought? When they went back home, because we know they went back home, did, it, did they feel like they didn't fit anymore because they had encountered Jesus? And now there were all these people in this polytheistic society clutching to all these gods that so they think, man, this just doesn't feel right anymore. Did they continue to worship Jesus from afar? We, we, we really don't know. But here's what we do know. Wise men... And wise women still worship Him. They kneel before Him. In fact, it's interesting because this takes place at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, right? Chapter 2. If you go all the way to the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus has all grown up. He's now lived the most remarkable life anyone has ever lived. He has gone to the cross to die for the sins of the world. On the third day, He has risen again. And so this scene at the very end of Matthew takes place about 40 days after His resurrection. In Matthew 28, verse 16, we read, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him. Just like the Magi had about 33 years earlier, they worshiped because they realized that they were in the presence of royalty, they were in the presence of deity, and nothing else made sense except to worship. So I'd like you to take a moment and just be thinking about your own worship life, your own heart, Um, have you been giving your highest excitement, your highest allegiance to something less than Jesus Christ? Because if you have, and we're all tempted to do that all the time, uh, it it won't work. It it won't last. Um, And maybe this Christmas, as we think about the worshiping of the Magi them worshiping Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to look at that thing that you've been putting so much hope in and just let it go. Maybe it's something that you just need, you know, in preparation for the new year, you just need to toss it out of your life. It has become an idol in your life. Or more likely there's something in your life that you just need to start holding a little more loosely. It's not bad in itself, but you just made it into an object of worship and it doesn't deserve that status. You're bowing down to it and it's not God that amazing Christmas gadget that you're looking forward to receiving this next week, enjoy it, but don't expect it to fill your soul. It will not do it. It can't. And neither will that car, that one you're thinking about right now, or that house, or that person. These may be things that it's fine to have, but don't look to them to do what only God can do. Um, Jesus is the only one who fills our soul. He came for you on Christmas. He died for you on the cross. He's alive for you now. So bow before Him. Use Christmas as an opportunity to renew your trust in Him. Worship Him. He is the only one who can give us the grace that fills our hearts with courage, because we know we need it. That fills our hearts with generosity, because we know we want to live that way, right? So bow down before Him. Worship Him this Christmas.